Welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about new and emerging technologies in the field of web and mobile software development. My name is Justin Zeeben, and I'll be your host today. I'm a developer at Smart Logic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile software applications since 2005. I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, the infamous wizard, Eric Ostrich. Hello, everybody. Great. And Eric, can you maybe tell us a little bit why this episode is a a very special episode uh, in comparison to our usual? Yeah. So this episode, we recorded the Saturday at lunch of Lone Star Elixir Conf 2019. What did we talk about in this episode? Because we definitely hit a lot of topics, but it's it's definitely worth listening to. So we kind of talked about Elixir.next, kind of what's coming in that, releases in the core, numerical computation performance, a lot about that, big O of Elixir, language wars, and the challenges of adopting Elixir in your workplace. So we somehow managed to get probably the the 10 most important developers in the ecosystem all in one room kind of a big deal. So give it a listen. Here is the Lone Star ElixirConf 2019 lunch episode. We are at Lone Star Elixir 2019, sitting in the green room with a number of the speakers and keynote speakers that are here for this conference. I'm going to let them go around and introduce, introduce themselves. Um, and we're Jumping in right now. What's up, Amos? Oh, sorry. No, Chris just messaged me and told me to come. In. Yeah, you come on in. <laughs> so we've also got the uh, got the crew from Elixir Outlaws here. We've got Chris Keithley. We've got Amos King. We've got Chris McCord. We've got Jose Valim. We've got Paul Schoenfelder. And and we've got and we've got some more. And we'll all introduce ourselves. Chris Keithley, do you want to take it off since you're? Uh, in the corner, right by the mic. Yeah, sure. So I'm Chris Keithley. I don't know what I'm known for. Probably, like maps versus structs is the thing I'm most <laughs> popular for right now. And just being a resident curmudgeon, I guess. I didn't really mean to end up that way, but here we are. Uh, and yeah, I run a podcast with Amos and um, do open source stuff. And uh, yeah, more or less just like say things. In the community, I don't have, I don't know what, what you guys have. This is so awkward. What do you, what do, you, what do, you, what do I do? I don't do anything. Well, I, just, I just talk to people. I mean, yeah, you write raft implementation. Just small, small. small yeah, I wrote raft, raft once. Raft. Yeah, I wrote raft once. Yeah, Chris. Things like that. Um, yeah, I wrote the uh, Phoenix. So that's uh, my, it's my main. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, I mean, I, no big uh, deal. I wrote, but I did write. Yeah, yeah. I think we could be a little bit more enthusiastic about that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I wrote this web framework called Phoenix. Um, yeah. So Phoenix is probably obviously my main contribution to the community, and um, I somehow parlayed that into working on Phoenix and related libraries, um, almost full time at Dockyard. So I found myself getting paid to write open source which wasn't the original goal, but it has worked out pretty well. So um, it's been kind of crazy being involved in the community since like 2013 when we were just doing oh, wow. yeah, the best we could. Yeah, we're, we're Don't old. count the days. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, at, at the beginning, we were just trying to get anyone to, um, to just listen to us and, and try the, the library and language out. Um, I remember being, yeah, being in IRC, watching like the active users, like, oh, we, we got like 18 people today. And, you know, last, <laughs> last week, we usually see like 10. So anyway, 
uh, it's been pretty cool to see the community grow and um, people start using Phoenix and somehow I find myself um, with a large user base and companies using it. Um, so it's been a pretty cool ride so far and yeah, happy to be, to be part of it. Very cool. And feel free to shamelessly plug anything you want. Okay. Paul? Uh, yeah, I kind of came to the community, I think, not long after these guys uh, just like came from .NET, mostly working in enterprise hell, and uh, started writing libraries for things that I was interested in. Like That's why I ended up building VXRM and Distillery, uh, Timex, uh, later like LibCluster, and some of those other things. There's a handful of libraries I've written for different things. Combine? Combine, yeah. <laughs> it's nothing now, though, with uh, Nimble Parsec. Uh, but yeah, a lot of those libraries, and uh, just kind of have fun finding problems I want to solve and and writing open source. Like Chris, I you know work for Dockyard. They pay me to basically work on open source all the time, so that's what I find myself doing, and uh, just trying to do that for as long as I possibly can. And uh, yeah, keep contributing to Elixir and to Erlang, and uh, try and keep things moving forward to bigger and better things. Great. Amos? Uh, I do the podcast with Keithley. Um, I've done a, quite a bit of nerves work over the years. Uh, library called GrovePy for people who are really just starting out with hardware um, using GrovePy system. Uh, worked on shoehorn. Uh, yeah, the, the crazy shoehorn thing as Keithley shakes his head at me. This is how it normally goes. I pretend that I know what I'm talking about, and Keithley, well, actually is me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and, and shows me how I'm wrong, but That's it not works true. out well. <laughs> That's also how our podcast works. Where yeah, Eric makes sure I'm not a total idiot. Yeah, the, the, we edit it all, so it sounds like I know what I'm talking about, but really, really, Chris just keeps me in line. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's about it. Great. And the reason we're all here, Jim? Uh, so I know Chris. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I, I know Chris. So it's an inside uh, joke, but yeah, he does know me. What they say on me? Oh yeah. Oh, oh well. Jeez, McCorn, don't get ahead of yourself. Golly, man. Just everything's always about yeah. you. Which one, is, which, one of us is, which, which one of us is the other Chris? Well, oh snap! No, I mean, one hundred percent, I'm the other Chris. Like, let's, I let's met, not be I met Mr. McCord for the first time on uh, um, I, um, IRSSI, right? So mm -hmm. um, he was talking about Phoenix over sugar. <laughs> there are a few, there are a few options. A few things were trying to crop up at the time, right? Spanish, so. sugar, thunder. Yeah. Wait, there was something reported named thunder. Yeah. Remember? Uh, yeah, out. Dark Darko. He joined. He was the first Games Core team member. But he. Oh yeah, I remember that. He disappeared very quickly. Oh but yeah, he, he wrote the first. He helped with the first uh, generator, project generator. Amazing. Yeah. I, I tried Good to use. Times. I, 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 I told him, I would really, really wish I could use Phoenix, but it was like, like a week old. <laughs> but I couldn't do it. But, uh, so my, my contribution is, recorded, so, mm -hmm. uh, I started the first Elixir Comp here in Austin, Texas, and this is our fourth. Two, three, four. This, yeah, this is our fifth yeah, conference here in, in Austin. Uh, I started the Elixir. No, six, no. 
the first one was 2014. So well, we had the, the two main Elixir conferences, and this is our third Lone Star. So you skipped the year at some point. Well, we. So Lone we Star. Awesome. 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15. This is number three for Lone Star. It's because it, Elixir Conf was was here, right? Right. And so and so it, it starts to blend in as though like that was. Lone yeah, Star, yeah. So right? we had Elixir Conf here, fourteen and fifteen. Yes, that's two. And yes. this is the third Elixir Conf. Yeah, so, so two plus three. 17, 16, 19, You skip sixteen. So two plus three is five. Yeah. You skip the year. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so anyway, I started ElectroConf EU, uh, and our first one was in Krakow, where uh, Jose is. Um, and then I helped start ElectroConf uh, Mexico, um, and then I started Lone Star ElectroConf. So After I skipped the year. Yeah, here. Zaki, Zaki's in the corner working on his talk yeah. that he's about to give. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hmm? <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm practicing. <laughs> so no. Okay. Yes. And uh, the man himself, Jose Bali. Uh, hi, I'm Jose. I'm the creator of Elixir, co-founder of Platform Tech. Yeah. Great. Uh, and then uh, <coughs> I'm Eric. Uh, mostly do silly text games, so, yeah. Great. So I think we should start with Jose and hear, you know, partly what was the impetus behind Elixir. I know we've all heard that before, but now, you know, where where is it going? Where's the future? Oh, the future. Uh, that's great, because I was looking for an excuse to delegate the question to all of you. <laughs> the future is in the community, so your turn. But speaking seriously, uh, at my last uh, Elixir Conf keynote, uh, I talked exactly about that, like Elixir is a programming language, like the things you want to have in the programming language. Um, we, we are mostly done, so the next thing we're doing is exactly releases, uh, bringing a minimum set of features so we can have releases part of core. And after that, I'm on permanent holidays. And <laughs> it is really up to the community to continue uh, Extending Elixir, bring it up to new domains, and uh, tackling new challenges. So releases just came up in that answer, and I guess Paul, you can really talk about where we stand with the releases yeah, and where we're going. Jose has kind of taken, uh, you know, the general concepts that were in EXRM and Distillery, and you know, made it part of Mix. I, I don't know that that's been released yet, but that's in progress, I think. Like we'll the next major release? Yeah, we're out in July. Yeah. According to our every six months release. So yeah, that would be the first time uh, the releases would be hardcore, and it would be like the fundamental primitives, right? It's not the full feature set that Distillery has, and that's intentional. The idea is that you know the community provides those uh, extensions and additional features. Distillery would be one of those libraries. You know, my aim is to essentially rip out the parts that will now be in core, uh, and then just act as kind of a library on top of things uh, to provide some of the things that don't really belong in core but are nice to have, anyways. Uh, you know, this past year. Uh, when I was working on Distillery, it was mostly about figuring out, you know, how are we going to deal with the question of runtime configuration and and just how do we get that last like mile on the features we need to really make this parkour. I think 
Jose was really helpful in, in helping me work through that and we came up with like the config provider stuff and that seems like the right abstraction for this but it remains to be seen you know once we've got stuff actually in mix uh, how it works out I think you know we've seen with distillery a lot of people have been really happy with the 2.0 release and you know how much easier it is to use versus how it used to be and I hope that you know with it in core it becomes even easier and and there's just less friction, you know, people always expect that deployment to some degree is solved by the language itself. Um, you know, in some languages it's just kind of a given because you're compiling to like a static binary or something, but uh, it's a little bit different in Elixir because we're kind of this blend of, you know, interpreter base, but also doing some form of ahead of time compilation. So it's a little bit confusing that you don't get like some artifact that you can then run right off of that. But with releases in core, I think it'll feel more like that, more like there's a native solution to deployment and that should help people uh, feel like there's less of this pain in the process. You know, especially back when EXRM was kind of the primary tool, there was a lot of edge cases and, and things that didn't work particularly well, a lot of areas where it wasn't very flexible that was the main reason for rewriting it into distillery was to provide you know more extension points and things like that but there's still lessons learned even uh, in distilleries so now that we've kind of iterated through a lot of those different uh, pain periods I think yeah. you know mix has got the right direction uh, excuse me uh, did you mention the uh, did you mention uh, about the uh, compiler uh, on uh, over Elixir yeah uh, yeah, I mentioned the compiler. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm develop developing the um, um, compiler of Elixir. Uh, uh, this is, Heisga uh, uh, is a part of compiler, uh, this compiler. So, uh, I, uh, um, um, uh, I, I use uh, meta programming infrastructure of uh, uh, Elixir uh, that that uh, use uh, that uh, uh, utilize to uh, parser uh, as a, as a parser as a parser yeah. yeah so and uh, backend is uh, implement uh, will will be implemented uh, to uh, uh, as uh, LLVM uh, yeah. so uh, my uh, Today is my presentation uh, introduce this architecture of uh, uh, this compiler. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Yes. Was uh, you were working on compiler mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. leverage the GPU, right? Like yes. Yes. GPU. Not only GPU. Ah. Yeah. That's cool. Now, now I I developed a, a focus on uh, GPU and SIMD instruction, but. Uh, not only uh, not only uh, them, uh, but also all of uh, all of uh, computation on uh, Elixir. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I mean that, those kind of efforts I think are mm -hmm. important because you know particularly being able to leverage mm -hmm. the GPU for mm -hmm. things like vector calculations or, mm -hmm. or heavy math yeah. uh, will enable us to kind of close the gap with mm -hmm. performance on. The beam's weakest point, which is really mm -hmm. raw competition. There will be an answer so. to the 
unsubstantiated adage about number crunching. Right. Yeah. Which Ooh. is like, which I, yeah, which is like true, but also like no one has any measurements, so it would be nice <laughs> to say, oh yeah, if you need to do this number crunching, we actually have a great option for that. Yeah, I think you solved. Yeah. Done. Can you expand on that a little bit? It's, oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. So I think I think is we inherited that from early. So, uh, and from old Erlang, because it's not a problem in Erlang anymore. So the issue is that Erlang would be slow if number crunching. And when we say slow, it's not like we are comparing to C, we are comparing to Fortran, comparing to Java. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. We're not yes. comparing PHP. Yeah, yeah. Not, yes, not, yes. I'm not listening on PHP, just saying that, you know, in benchmarks, it's one of the common. Right? My vision includes the, this vision. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, so yes. um, and so it is. It is is low if you're going to compare mm -hmm. with those mm -hmm. languages, mm -hmm. and but when this was everybody talked about mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. was before we had NIFs. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Erlang improved by adding NIFs, mm -hmm. which is a way that you can run native code like C yeah. in the Erlang virtual machine. Mm -hmm. But that was still a problem because even if you have NIFs. The NIFs they could not block, they could not hold, they could not stay like, they could not run for a second, because that would mess up the schedule in the virtual machine, how the virtual machine works. So uh, two years ago, actually it started on Erlang 17, which is kind of like four or five years ago, they started experimenting with this thing called dirty NIFs. So I could say, look, I have to perform a task. It's going to take a really long time, and just let me do this. So. So now we have, when we're talking about number crunching, right? So uh, a, a language that a lot of people use for number crunching, like Python, right? You're not doing that in Python, you're integrating with C. Is that before, Erlang and Linux did not even have this option to integrate with C. So today we have, we, we have the option to be on pair with the other languages, given that the fact that all those languages, they are mostly doing C integration. And that's a possibility today, so. Um, yeah, so number crunching is an issue, but today it can be solved as with any, as you would solve it in any other platform. There's and also yeah. uh, high B, you know, high performance Erlang. If you compile the native, like it's got an LLVM backend or a regular GCC based mm -hmm. backend, and that gives you something. It's like in between NIFs and and uh, just raw Erlang Elixir code because you're compiling to machine code. Uh, but you're not running the risk of interfering with the scheduler, right? Like that was the main thing with NIFs, is that still, even with dirty NIFs, it's possible if you're not writing the NIF correctly to break things, kill the node, that sort of thing. Um, but I don't think Hy-V is particularly used too often or people aren't necessarily aware of it. But right, so uh, the thing about Hype, which is, so Hype is a way you can say, I want to compile this code to native, and it goes there to your Erlang Elixir code, it's going to compile that to native, but with built-in integration in the VM, it uses the same mem memory model and everything. Um, the, the issue with hype is that, so for example, like if you, like if you run the dialyzer, you want to compile the dialyzer with hype because it's going to run like three, four times faster. So it can really be an improvement, but you need to make sure that uh, you are compiling like a closed part of your code base. Yeah. You do not want to be jumping between hype compile code, not, not hype yeah, compile crossing code. Crossing the barriers really yeah. expensive. So yeah. for example, if you say like, no, I have like 
So you just like have this numerical computation where everything is expressed like this, and then say, look, I want to compile everything here and everything that this calls to native, then hype is going to give you uh, a improvement. And and yeah, and then, so I was just coming from um, Code Beans San Francisco, and uh, they, they announced that they're also going to make the JIT uh, compiler. They're going to make it open source. They have been researching it for a while. And they'll make it open source. There is still no kind of deadline when that thing is actually going to be usable, but uh, they are making at least one step in this direction. So a lot of exciting work uh, happening on the area. Yeah. I also think, though, like, and I, I mean, I'm super excited about all that. That's going to be awesome. I also think that it's funny when people comment on, you know, the beam being slow. And those are the same people who are, like, running web services. And they're like, I want to run web services that, that like do all this I/O work, um, and just it's very funny to me because so there's so few pieces of that problem that are truly CPU bound, and they're all bound by like networks. And more than anything, in my opinion, at really high scales, you're bound by failure. Like you're bound by like faults, and you're bound by faults in the system and how you handle those faults in the system. Uh, and it doesn't sort of matter that the beam is slow, even if you took the line of reasoning that it is slow, like computationally, like just d does less CPU than Java does or whatever. Because like you're able to handle faults so much better and run all these things concurrently and like isolate failures everywhere. And so I don't know, like when I look at our metrics and like see our traffic spikes and stuff, it's like I can imagine trying to do any of this with Java. Like I've I've worked on big systems with Java running at scale. It's like this is a nightmare. I got to pay like three people to learn how garbage collection works and to swap it out with some other improved thing and to like tune JVM heap sizes. And I don't want to do any of that crap. Like anyhow, it's it's we don't do we barely do any tweaking of the beam to get performance out of our out of our system. Right out of the box, it's really well. Did you mention the? Uh, Isolation of memory space. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I agree strongly um, because um, RAM uh, VM is uh, uh, very strong uh, memory uh, protection. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, RAM and EXA uh, can uh, can can can. Um, use leverage. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, um, but uh, now NIF uh, 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 means uh, native interface, native interface function uh, is uh, not. Uh, I, I think uh, not. Uh, this, this is not. Uh, uh, called uh, invoke uh, uh, new new process of RAM VM. Uh, so uh, the uh, in NIF, NIF uh, uh, can, cannot uh, multi process programming. So Hesla is uh, can't uh, multiple uh, programming. So this this pre implement uh, now current implementation is uh, using uh, POSIX thread or or, uh, or Rust thread, but uh, this is uh, this has uh, uh, some overhead. So um, 
I, I, I want to uh, use RMVM process, but I can't. I also think with the with the number crunching, and I don't I'm in the web space obviously, so I don't go too low level. But the the number crunching thing also pressures me a little bit because when people use that as a way to dismiss Elixir, or like we're, you know we're, this is an audio recording, but we keep mentioning slow, but it's like in air quotes, so you don't see. So imagine the air quotes. But it's like slow in the context of like compared to C, but yeah. faster than probably anything most people are using. But the thing with number crunching specifically for me is, and someone correct me with them if I'm wrong, but uh, is, is, this is this a true statement? I can represent, if I'm trying to represent the largest integer possible, I, that the beam would exhaust us in memory yeah. versus uh, overflowing. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. for me, I think the conversation around this too, like people, they just see, oh, well, it's slower than C or it's slower than Java, but the, the nuance is like what Chris was talking about was for one, at least coming from the context of what I think a lot of us in the community are building, like it doesn't matter at all. But for two, like there's a trade-off there where, like we don't have to worry about the specific uh, data types like overflowing. Yeah, don't have to worry about yeah, different and kinds of and integers. And, there, and there's legitimate reasons for that. Like when you look at Erlang and the problems they were solving, like if you want a system that's up and running for months or years, like you don't have to worry about like if I'm bumping some counter reference, like oh right. well. I ran this for eight months and it crashed because I overflowed an integer. It's like there are valid reasons that, there are valid reasons to some of this number crunching being quote unquote slower, but it's not like, oh, just we didn't get it right. It's like there are legitimate reasons they are the way that they are. So you're getting benefits from the potential it, downsides that most people, and the, that conversation, that side of it never happens. And I like there are like some things in the early docs because exactly because from this scenario, like they have to think about running it long term is like, mm -hmm. Oh no! We add this functionality, and then that, for example, is allocating like unique references, right? And then they're like, "Well, we have this functionality implemented in a way that if you call it uh, every like second, you are going to get a duplicate." Like they did the math and they put in the doc. Like you're going to get a duplicate in the year two thousand three hundred and seven. Glad you did the math. I'm glad. Glad you're safe. I think I think a lot of people end up to like using a lot of really uh, just bad logic to reason about this kind of stuff. And it comes up with like with the immutable data stuff too, where people say, "Well, oh, because I can't do." I mean, you talked about this yesterday in your talk. I meant as I I, I gestured to Osa, uh, <laughs> which is a great opportunity to uh, introduce the uh, <laughs> the guests that just joined us. Osa, guys, do you want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about you know? your history of Elixir? Yeah, sure. I'm Osa Gaius. Uh, I worked at uh, several places in functional programming for a company called Luma. We built uh, lots of consumer devices. And I, I faced a similar challenge like they were describing here where, you know, about five Elixir engineers, sort of like a, like a sort of conflict within the company. Uh, and the answer to that by management was to bring in two Java developers to rewrite the entire piece of software. Um, and I thought that was interesting because their argument was Elixir is slow, uh, even though we had like reached 50,000 devices in the field. Um, but I think they were able to make the argument because we as Elixir developers at the company didn't have a, like a strong sense on why saying something is slow is like intellectually bankrupt as an idea. Um, and saying that writing in Java was like also like equally silly, right? We couldn't say that because we weren't like 
bold enough, um, but I think they as Java developers were bold enough to say, no, your language is, is like silly and like it's a toy language. So I think there's definitely a... Well, no one's ever been fired for, for choosing Java. Right, right yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think part of the challenge, at least for, for me in that moment, was like being pretty strongly opinionated about why slow doesn't matter and why Java wasn't the right answer in that situation, especially given a complete rewrite. Um, but I think that's, that's kind of tough when you're in the moment. But I also think like slow is not, like the, the things that people do even when they try to be scientific about what slow means is just wrong. Like they're just, they're just not correct. Like people, like people talk about with immutable data like not being able to do like oh one access to things. It's like, yeah, well it turns out you don't know how to, it, it, it turns out that one doesn't matter in practice because O log 32 is pretty good. Uh, and also you need to learn how amortized time complexity works. And uh, Amos will tell don't, you all about that. Don't look at me. So, <laughs> <laughs> tired of reading that book. Yeah, I mean, but I just mean that like, like amortized time is actually how like new data structures are being created and those are where like interesting advancements are happening. And like this whole swath of people doesn't know how to do that. Even in OO languages, right. amortized time is something that Matters. researchers are looking at way more often than they used to. Yeah. But, but it's easy to sort of chalk up and be like, nah, it's too slow, it's just a bunch of lists. Could, like, could you define that in simple terms for? No. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a book. No, amortized, amortized time just means, okay, so if you, traditional big O notation is based on this thing called asymptotic time analysis. And the idea is that you look at the worst case scenario. Uh, we're, probably people are familiar with that. Amortized, uh, amortized time uh, analysis basically says, well, it turns out that worst case isn't always the worst case. The worst case isn't what you do a lot of the time. And so instead, you, you, you do uh, time analysis based on the number of, uh, based on the types of operations that you would actually do to a real data structure, right? So I'm getting and I'm setting, and those increase costs and decrease costs. And I can actually do a more interesting time analysis based on uh, the distribution of operations that I'm going to do on a piece of data. Uh, and so it turns out that when you do that, um, it opens up this whole design space for much more interesting data structures. And that's where you start to get things like hash rate map tries. Like, you know, there's a lineage there that traces all the way back to like um, Chris Okasaki's book and, and doing um, immutable pure data structures uh, and, and sort of works its way down to, to where we are now where we get to utilize all this stuff. Um, and it's because it opened up the design space to, to talk about more interesting ways uh, of mutating and changing data um, and more interesting ways of doing analysis. And yet most of us don't ever learn that unless you take a master's you know, degree or you study it on your own. Uh, and so we're, we're still stuck in a way of looking at um, the design space when actually a lot of the design space has changed when you talk about academia. So I don't know, there's that too. It's like people are still using old ways of thinking about problems. Well, and if slow to you is about CPU, but your problem is not CPU bound, then it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter how slow it is. But my but my Fibonacci as a service is gonna be dope. Better <laughs> <laughs> write that in Rust. Right, yeah, better write it in Rust. Those types will really solve it. I, I've, I've, I've heard of similar instead of Rust. I've run into it a few times where, where arguments of people saying, well, Elixir or Lang are, are slow, and even doing mathematical computations, a lot of that stuff, if you sit down and try to break it down, you can parallelize it pretty easily. And I, I brought that up 
and have been told, oh, well, we can do that too. And then I have it parallelized and faster because I can parallelize it in less than a day. Yeah, and, and they're still working it. on it two weeks later <laughs> and frustrated and can't get things working. So to me, it was worth that amount of time to move on to the next problem. And I'm already faster than their current solution. And they're still working on the next one to try to parallelize that. And without data points and the nuance, then the, the conversation is, there's no value to it. Like with, like just as far as number crunching, like I said, I'm not doing any like matrix computations, but like one of the projects that we've worked on recently is like a financial trading platform. And instead of immediately saying like, oh, we, we better shell out to something that can do number crunching, uh, we started with like, what are your, you know, we asked client, what are the trading requirements? Like what's the uh, max throughput this thing needs to handle? And we were told 10,000 trades a second. So it was like, well, let's see what we can do in Elixir um, and see if we can get 10,000 trades a second. So we wrote a trading algorithm. So long story short, like using Ecto, getting the data in the system using with Postgres and then reacting to that event, um, walking a couple EDS tables and doing the actual trade matching logic just in Elixir, comparing Elixir structs and data structures. So it's not really hard number crunching, but something that you would say for a financial trading platform comparing all this data. Anyway, we were able to get 13,000 trades a second uh, on our development MacBooks to, to validate like is Elixir good On the for first try or pretty much like the implementation as it came to be? Or yeah, as it came to be. I mean, yeah. it wasn't, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't really any massaging. It was like, okay, get the data into the system, persist it, you know, build it in EDS, and then we would walk a couple EDS tables and match trades and then move data around. Load it up with work, <laughs> run the benchmark, 13,000 trades a second. Like it's, um, so yeah, so that's how, when we, when I hear number crunching, yeah, at first it needs to be nuanced, like what are, you, what are you doing, and then what do you mean by number crunching, and given this metric that you're trying to achieve, it may be, like for us, that was blazing fast, so we were like, okay, great, this works on a MacBook, and we, let's build this product, and we didn't have to go down the rabbit hole of, let's, you know, write a NIF for this. Yeah. I mean, we, we've certainly seen CPU problems. Like, I won't, I won't, you know, it is something to address. Like, like it is a real thing that you do need to be aware of. And, and certainly, like at Bleach Report, we've seen um, CPU bound problems mainly around um, JSON decoding and encoding. Yeah, so, I, I mean, like, but it's, but if it's, you can it's make it faster, why don't you make it faster? Right? right, yeah. I think, like, I think everyone in this room, if you say, like, I will make it ten times faster. Nobody's going to say no. Everybody's going to say yes. Right? Yeah, like, nobody's it. like, no, I don't want that. I mean, unless unless you have issues like, I, I saw that somebody tweeted that they had to add a slowdown in their application because yeah, it I was re I retweeted it. It yeah. was replying so fast that people they, they would thought it was fake. Thought, yeah, yeah. Thought, thought their, cust their customers thought they were faking the. The UI. Yeah. Like, they yeah, believe it. it. Anyway, but going seems back. That's like a good tweet that made. <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't no. believe that. Yeah, <laughs> down to make it I, have, I have a vision. Uh, one vision. Uh, my Heska uh, will uh, only, not only server side and uh, client side, mm -hmm. and also client side. Uh, so, via uh, uh, web assembly and web GL and web GPU. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Client side, client side computing, uh, just uh, using for uh, user interface and machine learning on uh, machine learning on user side. 
So, and uh, server-side uh, computing uh, uh, will uh, use uh, uh, database uh, manipulation and uh, some cloud computing. This is my vision. Yeah. Yes. So, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I want to shift gears from some of the real deep technical yeah. topics that mm -hmm. we touched on, yeah. and Jose, I'll let you go there. But I, I want to talk, because Osa, yesterday in your talk, you brought up uh, how Java in the 90s like, won the language wars, and how that was not the outcome that was actually uh, best for the community. I'd like to hear from you guys, I mean, how do we, and I think maybe part of this is being pretty aggressive about it, how do we take back the mantle, how do we displace uh, the top dog and sort of rectify this error in the marketplace? Just a second. I, I just want to, to finish the thought. Sure. So, um, so like we would all take a performance <coughs> speed, right? Like it, I think it can be 10 times faster, mm -hmm. right? But the, the goal is that, the point is that performance in the huge majority of the cases, it's like salary, right? Like who would like here at a 10 times raising salary? Everybody's like, yes, please, right? And I would say no. But we as engineers is like, you know, we want to receive a reasonable amount of salary, so we don't. We can focus on our work. We don't have to worry about things. That the same thing with performance. You want to have a good ballpark where we can do everything, and then, and then you can focus on everything else, right? So assuming that performance is good, is in a good place, then you you are going to value everything else. You're going to value fault tolerance. You're going to value uh, the programmer productivity, happiness. You're going to value the tooling. Right, so in the most cases, the performance is in the good ballpark, and yes, and there are things that can improve. Mm -hmm. Right, so for example, in our application, I think what could be improved with performance is like JSON, mm -hmm. JSON code. Right. Right. That's something right. that could improve. But even right. things like in other in other or in other languages, in other frameworks, would be a problem like template rendering. Template rendering is a pro is a problem solving thing. There's nothing to to speed up there. It goes as fast as it can, and so like. In an application, I see possibly encoding the code is very good in performance, mm -hmm. and you know to maybe get something that's going to be three times faster than what we are right now, mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah, and then to me, like if I would say why well, I would want things personally to be faster, it's just to make the compiler even go even faster. That for me, that's that. I want to me if I can get a ten times faster compiler, to be that to be about the tooling. But I think like most cases, the uh, performance is. Totally fine, but it's totally fine, and it can look at everything else. Yeah, sorry, I had to. No, I, I, I think that's interesting, right? Because I think if we assume that performance is already good or good enough, I think then the real question is how do I, as an engineer, convince my manager who manages 10 people to let me spin up this Elixir thing to solve this problem when we already use PHP or Java, right? So I think the real challenge isn't how do we you know, overturn Java or replace Java, whatever phrase you want to use, I think the real question is how do we get a seat at the table so that mm -hmm. when we make yes. that decision, yes. it's not, you know, here's this random esoteric language versus here is the best performant language that there are a bunch of libraries for. And I think that's a much, that takes more work on our end than it does uh, from a language level because I think we have to come to the table with an openness and say like, what is the Java thing you care about performance for? Like, okay, how many requests per second do you want? How many trades per second do you want? Okay, I'll go build you a system that does that. 
let's compare, you know, apples versus apples rather than I think today people assume, you know, that we don't have a sort of an answer to the performance question and so they sort of automatically dismiss it and say, well, let's just pick something we know is quote unquote performing. So yeah, I don't think it's about winning, I think it's more about getting into the conversation. But do we think that generally performance is the bottleneck of elixir adoption? No. I, I don't I think don't. it is. It's no, I, think, I, I think it, it drives the adoption. So we just had Ben Carter all walk in the room. We're Brian, shooting a Brian. podcast right now, and you're on audio if you want to be. Do you want to maybe answer this question about how, do we, <laughs> how, how does Elixir win the language war and displace Java as top dog? I don't think it will. I don't think that's realistic. I don't yeah. think, yes. I don't think if, that, if that's, that's the Sisyphean task. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm honest, if that's the goal is to displace Java, I think it's going to, failure is the only result of that. I think that a more realistic uh, goal for Elixir is to probably aim for like top three uh, as opposed to go for number one. If you go for number one, like displacing how heavily, like Java benefit from the time in which it came up and where systems were being developed from scratch and they assessed what language to use. And now at this point, if you're trying to displace Java, you have to convince those organizations to replace what they currently have, which is significantly more difficult than going in and deciding something from the get-go. So I don't, I don't think that's a realistic approach. I think instead, um, like I said, like top three or something like that, but as far as uh, methods for doing so, um, I mean, like my talk said, it, it's a more nuanced approach. The, the performance and the developer ergonomics, these are all good for engineers to discuss with each other. And uh, I think some engineers that have been faced with those problems see the value of that. But there has to be a, um, an economical reason that is brought back to non-technical people on why they, they should adopt this or consider it. And the, non -econo the economical reasons vary from organization to organization. So someone came up to me after my talk and said that they've been interviewing with a bunch of companies and they want to use Elixir in these companies and they asked me how they can get Elixir to adopt into those companies. I said, I can't answer that question without understanding what the pain points of those companies are. And maybe in some cases, it's not the right answer. But it's, um, I mean, where we've, where the, the specific points that we've seen with difficulty bringing Elixir into companies is uh, talent availability, um, which I think, so my argument in my, in my presentation about uh, those that are able and willing uh, to transition to Elixir, I think has truth to it. I wouldn't put it in there if I didn't think it was true. But I, I think that there is just a, a, a gap right now between um, where Elixir is and other languages are in terms of available, like high caliber talent. Like, you know, bringing over Rails engineers to doing Phoenix apps is good, but when you start to, you know, when you start to get into more of the weeds of like building out like really like highly concurrent systems and what that takes, it's that's where like some real training needs to occur. Um, the other side of it is going to be just you know that the, a lot of companies are burnt out on being told that they need to now try out this other thing. This has been a consistent problem that we've seen. Like it used to be that. Companies like to get ahead of the technology curve to a degree, 
and they would talk about, or they would be willing to adopt it because some new engineers came in and said, oh, this is where, this is what everyone's doing now. We need to do that. And a lot of companies and a lot of management are wise to that game, and they're just, they're sick of it. They're sick of wasting money, they're sick of uh, having their, their, you know, this disruption to their product, uh, uh, their feature development on their products being part of the roadmap now. I think what they're looking for is long-term investment in a particular platform or technology. If they're willing to accept what they currently, ha currently have, okay. But um, I know, Jose, you didn't see my talk, but one thing I, I put in there was at ElixirConf where you spoke about how you have no real plans for 2.0 right now. And I think stability is one of the uh, most under, yeah, most, yeah, most under uh, appreciated value of what Elixir brings to the table. Um, and it's something that should absolutely be part of the conversation when, uh, uh, you know, putting together the values of Elixir into organizations. Like it has long-term stability. You can you can make bets on this technology and not be concerned that like two years from now you're gonna have to rewrite everything because some new version, like new APIs are available. Always just like upgrade pains, upgrade pains, upgrade pains exist in all these, I mean JavaScript is probably the exact opposite. It's like the other side. Everything's moving so fast in JavaScript that um, you're constantly upgrading all of your applications and it's such a, uh, it, it's such a weight on the teams to, to absorb that. I've run into a lot in working with clients in that they're not after high concurrency, high availability. Yeah many pieces of software out there don't need to be that. So when you try to sell them that, they also say, well, I don't need a, an engineer who's who's good at that stuff. I can hire a mid-level Java developer at a dime a dozen compared to what I have to get somebody who, who has that skill set to come in and do Elixir and high availability. So being able to show them why high concurrency can help them uh, more than just in the engineering yeah. point is has been a good way that I've it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because the things that we get excited about as engineers aren't always the things that other people in works are excited about and when we start to really like go off and get into the weeds of talking about these things we lose them sometimes you lose that argument like, uh, like for us like when you're talking about number crunching well yeah well that's one, that's one thing but like for us like you know I've I've been involved with uh, you know stakeholder meetings where I'm, I'm pitching elixir evaluating and sometimes it just doesn't make sense for them and I think that's okay like in one case uh, uh, like, I, like Amos was saying the fact that it was fast and scalable you know the main things that we use to pitch elixir all, all of the shiny points like they were like no big deal they literally they I can, it's not a direct quote but they said we were happy to literally throw money at the problem um, and they had a, a lot of Ruby engineers and they didn't want to retrain them so mm -hmm. So the pitch that I could make was not um, compelling, and I think that's okay in some cases. So I think this is kind of what Brian was saying, like, you're not going to always win, like, it, you, we can't displace everything. Like, I think no matter how good we are, it has to make a business sense, and that's where um, you you have to play to what act, what can it actually do for the company. And for that specific stakeholder, it for what they saw could not do much for them. But then, like, we were talking at dinner, uh, Chris and I, uh, with someone else at their company, uh, they were paying for like a, uh, a WebSocket connection provider, to, and they were paying like $10,000 a month. So they were able to go to management and say, I think Elixir could be pretty good here and save us $10,000 a month. And then they spent one week of company time and rewrote it with Phoenix, and it works better, and they're not paying $10,000 a month. So it was a, 
easy business decision there, but it, it had to make sense for the company. All these things are marketing things, and at the end of the day, uh, market, marketing is 100% always about picking a competition and then comparing you to the competition. And you don't pick competition that can beat you. You pick competition that you will win against, and and then you let people make choices for themselves. And and like I think we we as, a group, basic. <laughs> we as a group have to have to figure out what it is that we're going to market. Like what is it that's going to like take us to that next level, and and like lean into those things, and then just give up or not waste our energy trying to win against things that are that are that are always going to be the default choice. Like. Trying to be like, let's say you wanted to sit like replace Rails as the default choice for boot camps, you will fail. You'll just not succeed at doing that because it's already the de facto standard. So you're going into a competition that you're like never gonna win. <laughs> so like you know, it's you got to pick the right battles. Well, we're at time now, guys. This has been an incredible conversation. I've never seen anything like this in a podcast before. So thank you all very much. Uh, the fact that like Bruce Tate just walked in here at the last minute. Hey, Bruce. Didn't, Bruce. <laughs> you want to say hi, Bruce? Hi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just wild. I've never seen anything like that. So and we have Ben Marks as well. Yeah, yeah Ben's Ben Marks walked in too. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> so uh, how many people can we fit in this room? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty remarkable. Thank you all so much. This has been an episode of Smart Software with Smart Logic. Look smart people. <laughs> <laughs> we do not have smart water though. Yeah. Uh,